This is the Compiling Podcast with Rob Z and Friends, where I talk to technical experts about their day-to-day work and what they do in between. For more information, visit compiling.publicgeeking.com. Thanks for listening. This is the Compiling Podcast with Rob Z and Friends. I'm Rob Z. Today, I had a chance to talk to my friend, James Higginbotham. He's the executive API consultant with Launch Any, a published author, and frankly, just one of the guys I really look forward to when i seeing when I go to a conference and, and really enjoy hanging out and meeting with him. Um, I've worked directly with him in the past on projects, and outside of that, it's just been great to hook up with him and communicate with him, and, and of course, he was near the top of my list when I was putting this podcast together. One of the things I really appreciate, appreciate about him, I should say, is he's got a very keen insight into software design and particularly distributed software design and API-first design. He takes a very methodical approach that I find not only helps his customers better articulate what they're trying to get done and better help them understand the value of the recommendations he's making, but it helps practitioners like me better organize my projects and uh, helps me improve my relationship with my clients as I'm able to better help them articulate this knowledge and better help navigate them through the kind of thorny, thick process that sometimes comes with distributed systems design. So today we're going to talk about his approach to API-first design and get some insights that hopefully you'll be able to apply with your team, especially as you approach distributed API design and distributed software design. But then we're going to launch into a conversation that I'd say any technical individual with who's spent any significant time behind a desk and sitting down, they should probably spend a little more time thinking about. And that's the health of their back. <laughs> Let's dive in. Um, I want to start with, uh, well, first of all, give us an introduction. Tell me who you are. I know who you are. Who, tell everybody else who you are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, name is James Higginbotham, um, founder of Launch Any. We do, we offer consulting, uh, focused primarily around the API program space. So we work with a lot of organizations, some software as a service companies, but mostly enterprise IT, helping them establish, grow, and mature their API program. So it's all things API for us. But it's not just all things API, and that's actually what we're going to talk about here. APIs are sort of almost at the peak of what you're talking about. Beneath it is all of the design and thinking that needs to go into making sure that you're not just creating APIs that people can use, but they're going to move the business forward, that are actually going to be forward thinking and stuff and you you just released well i keep saying you just released a book but here it is 2023 <laughs> it came out in 2021 the principles of web api design delivering value with apis and microservices um tell me about the book like first of all tell me what is the topic of the book and and what is aside from the title like what are we what, what are you what are you expecting folks to get out of this what do you why'd you write it yeah, I, you know, I, I had written a book with Keith Casey previously. We self-published it through LeanPub, and uh, we did that many, many years ago. Uh, I'm trying to remember how long, probably 2015, hmm. 2016, somewhere around in there, I think. Uh, I may have my dates a little off, but but roughly around that timeline where he and I got together and said, you know, there's really a need to help people go through the design process. So we wrote that a while back, and we built training around it. 
But over time, what I discovered was that there was a lot of need, as you said, not just about APIs strictly, but how do we go from requirements or needs, you know, as we're discovering what the need is, that's going to drive the need to create, design, and, and deliver an API. How do we go from that to an API design? And through my consulting engagements, I started finding techniques that worked, that helped teams that didn't really have a product thinking hat that they were used to wearing, to kind of put that on a little bit and think from the outside in, what are we really trying to solve here? What is success? Success isn't just designing the API, just figuring out what the JSON should look like, just using the right HTTP response codes if we're doing REST, just getting the paths right or whatever else. There's more to it than that. And so over time, that original book I wrote with Keith started to change. The training I was doing started to expand. It started to incorporate more of these elements. And so when I talked to Von Vernon, who's well-known in the domain-driven design space, mm -hmm. he's written a couple of books there, um, specifically in domain-driven design. He's collaborated with Eric Evans, who kind of coined domain-driven design and really ran with it and started getting people doing things. He found um, that Addison Wesley, uh, owned by Pearson, wanted a signature series with his name and wanted him to be a senior editor for that signature series, which opened him up to not just write books himself, to be an editor over a series. And he started asking, what do I want in that series? And one of those things was API design. Hmm. So as he and I started talking and, you know, talking about what his philosophy is and how he's advocated to developers over the years, how to think more about design and architecture, how to do things that are pragmatic, but also, um, you know, very thoughtful and kind of forward-looking and blending that product thinking into software development. He wanted something like that for API design. And it just so happened that I was looking at wanting to revise the work that Keith and I had done. And so uh, he gave me that opportunity to pull all that together into a book that helps you go from understanding those early requirements and kind of breaking down assumptions of Let's not assume we know what people need. Let's kind of ask questions and get clarity uh, all the way to API design and to do it in a way that supports REST, GraphQL, gRPC, and any other API style that comes out in the future. So that's kind of how, kind of the origin story of how that evolved is had a book, wanted to revise it. Vaughn comes along and says, here's an opportunity to really lay this thing down and put it in print. And so it was a, a fantastic opportunity. And I really appreciate Vaughn for, for stepping out and advocating for that, and guiding a, me through that process. I mean, that's a really, that sounds like a really cool and important series, actually. I mean, talking about domain-driven design. So let, let's actually take a step back here. So when you, you talked about going in and, and as part of your consulting engagements, really understanding that some things, I don't want to say it this way, but I'm going to say it this way. Things kind of fell apart with, with some of these teams as they were trying to go toward their API design, mm -hmm. and you saw some opportunities. When you look at a team that's trying to get their APIs together, what are you looking at? What are you seeing as common challenges that drove you to want to put all of this into a book and make this, you know, standardized? Um, you know, a lot of this was opened up from one of my clients. I have a, a bank. It's a North American bank that's pretty large. They have 12,000 developers, Oof. over 2,500 scrum teams. They've always been digital first. Um, they 
started, the bank started years ago, you know, using a lot of different technologies, eventually landed on soap, and then they started modernizing and started going toward rest. So they started building an API's center of excellence or center for enablement, some people call it. Um, and, and they needed some help and they needed help in two ways. One, they needed to train teams on how to think about API design. And two, they needed some help on how to get the program kind of formalized and up and running. So we, I saw a lot of teams coming in with API design and it started to see that a, a number of common problems every team was encountering, which led to what the book contains. Teams would come in saying, here's my API design, and they would show an open API spec and go, hey, that's great. You've got an open API spec, you invest in documenting it and capturing everything in a, in a machine readable format. But they suffered from two problems. One, they probably started from the bottom up. They would look at the data sources that they had and design from that, or look at the systems, the way they operated today and design from that. Two, they would not understand the full context of what they fit into. And it was because of the division of labor. They were being told, build this API that gets this from a data source. And so someone come in and say, yeah, I built this API and it's a get, and here's the path and here's the resource and here's the ID. We go, great, how do you get that ID? Oh, well, you have to have access to this data source to know what the ID is because no one's built the collection, the resource collection API operation to allow us to filter and query and get that so that we can then ask for the details of that resource. So there would be these breakdowns. And, and so what would happen is you get these little fragments. Here's an operation here. Here's an operation there. Um, we didn't actually talk to a consumer about how they want to use this. And they would go through the review process, meet all the criteria for the standards and conventions and API styles and what the linter was telling them to fix but no one used it. Why didn't they use it? Because they weren't solving problems. Mm -hmm. They delivered an API that delivered data, but they didn't actually understand the problem and the solution. And so we had to back up a little bit and say, okay, how do we help teams do that? And that's where a lot of this book originated from was how do we help a development team that's not really thinking in terms of product? How do we catch them early to make them realize you have more questions to get answered before you're ready to design? So now, what is your solution? Because this is something that I've experienced throughout my career as well. I, I have this. <laughs> I remember uh, uh, trying to re trying to figure out how to say this. I worked for a company for a while where we were refactoring from the ground up. We were just completely rebuilding the entire system, which was at that point about ten years old. Which I don't suggest, right? Like go in there and try to figure out a way to adapt what you have, starting from scratch. Mm -hmm. Not always the best. At any rate. Um, and I remember one day I was in the kitchen and one of the developers was in there complaining rather loudly about how stupid this thing he was working on. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about what's going on. And he's like, well, I just don't even understand this and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh, well, I was actually in on the meeting where we made that decision. Let me explain to you why. And when I explained to him the point of view of the customer and the user and what they're doing, that was all of a sudden it was like a light bulb moment for him. It, it if somebody had explained that to me, I'd have known, oh shit, I've got things to change. So he like ran back to his desk. So like, I feel like there has been, especially with the introduction of agile, cause that's what we were trying to do is this extremely rigid version of agile where the product team came up with the requirements and the developers were just kind of supposed to implement them. And that was it. How do you see that working or modifying? Like what is that the challenge that you you're seeing in this as well? Or, and, and, and what do you recommend for, make sure developers understand why they're developing this stuff. Yeah, that's, it's exactly it. Uh, you know, I always point people in my training because I do API training and help people 
understand how to use these processes. And years ago, as it was understand what a REST API is, and now a lot of people are familiar with that. So we, we get to kind of jump forward a little bit and get deeper in the conversation. But I always uh, point people back to the Agile Manifesto mm-hmm. and get people to read that. And I'll actually put it on a slide in front of everybody and say, let's call out a key point, a few key points. And one of the key points is developers should be talking directly to the customers. And what we've done is we created these Agile processes to be safe and, and secure in our world. <laughs> and, and, and we've removed the developer from the customer again, and we yeah. value code. I, the worst, one of the worst phrases that I've ever heard is hands-on keys, hands-on keyboards. Yeah. I'd hear executives and managers say, we need hands-on keys. We got oh, a hands-on geez. keyboard. They got to be cranking code. Yeah. And what they don't realize is that every line of code, I'm a developer. I got a developer background. You do. We know every line of code you write, or if you don't agree with that statement, every method, function, module that you compose has assumptions built in. And either those assumptions are correct or they're incorrect. And if you are not in an open channel for feedback to make sure one, to catch yourself on the assumption, and two, to get clarification on the assumption, you're going to write code that makes the wrong assumption, that requires you to scramble at the last minute, that goes on to a technical backlog that never gets fixed because you missed something up. You've got to quickly scramble to make, make it work in that same timeline that you've already committed to because you committed to a timeline based on a certain set of assumptions. Yep. Yep. So we've removed the customer. We've removed the requir- requirements gathering, the understanding, the analysis that we used to do for quote agile when the agile manifesto said we as developers are delivering value to the end users who are going to be using the system whether it's a human clicking through a web or mobile interface or whether it's a developer human integrating with an api to help someone so a human or an automated system do something all software development is primarily communication Mm-hmm. And we failed to communicate. So what what I started introducing into this process, which I captured in the book, is let's start from what's called an align phase. So the process itself is called ADDR, ADDR. align, align, define, design, refine. It's like four phases that we go through. And it just kind of simplifies things a little bit. In the align phase, our goal is to make sure we as developers and we as API designers understand what the needs of the customers or end users are. Now, the end users in the API world might be a developer and that's your target market. Or it could be that they're going to be using your API, but your target market, your target audience isn't developers. It's a human that's going to use some solution that's built on your API by a developer. So now you have this kind of two-layered concern. You have the developers making sure things are easily understandable to them. So they can use your API to solve problems for the people they're solving problems for. And that allows the, the, the end user to get things done. And so people didn't have any kind of gate or check point that said, do I fully understand what's needed so that when I design this API, I'm hitting the mark right and I'm not missing it so bad that I've got to make all kinds of compromises in my design that makes things even harder to understand and misses the mark still. And so that's what we want to do. And, and the goal here is, do I understand enough to produce outcomes that these people want? Mm-hmm. 
So what I like to do is I stumbled upon this idea of jobs to be done. And that J, uh, jobs to be done, JTBD, started from Clayton Christensen, mm-hmm. who wrote Crossing the Chasm and a number of other books. He had this startup mind where he said, if you're building a startup, the best thing you can do is find a problem, find a job to be done that you're going to deliver upon that makes things easier. So you're trying to find the problem, you're trying to find the desired outcome, and then the job to be done in the middle is the startup business. It's the business of the startup. What job are you delivering? For tech startups, it's software primarily. Mm-hmm. For tech startups that are delivering APIs, it's an API that is that allows that job to get completed. So it takes someone from a problem situation to a solved outcome that they want. And that's what we want to do. And if you can't, if you as the API designer cannot understand or do not know what that outcome is, just like what you were talking about in your example, what it, why, why are we doing this? If we don't understand that, we're going to design an API that's fit for purpose. It sits on top of a system. It's very specific to that system. It maybe doesn't deliver an outcome, but it delivers some data. And then we're, what we've done is we've kicked the can of solving the problem, delivering the outcome to someone on the front end. Yep. 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 Instead of taking the front end design and the API and coming together and aligning on what we need to do so that the two work together. And so the align phase, the goal of it is to help understand and break down those assumptions so that when we design an API and put it out there, it's going to help solve those problems and not make things worse for a developer that has to work around things that weren't designed properly into the API or completely misses the mark. Now, in this phase, are you also coming up with like done criteria and KPIs and metrics that allow me to know that, okay, we, we know these are the consequences they care about. Here's how we can measure our success. Is that part of that or is, where does that come in? Uh, so it, I don't necessarily require it for the ADDR process, but it does or should come in from the product owners that are involved. So in, even in enterprise IT, we're seeing a lot more product thinking come in and, and some of the methodology, methodologies out there encourage the idea of a product owner or product manager being in certain positions in there that are kind of overseeing these things. So I, in an enterprise space, particularly not in say a SaaS or a startup, the development team are typically focused on delivery. The ADDR process helps us to slow down and say, do we understand why we're doing this delivery? And if we don't, let's go back and ask some questions and make sure we understand so that it will influence in a positive direction our API designs. In a software as a service or startup world, those barriers aren't as great. Your, your dev teams are probably much closer to the, the product owner or the director of product or someone who has this vision of the CEO that that has this idea that's trying to go to market, you're probably a little bit closer. You don't have as many communication paths. You might better understand that. And so your align phase goes really fast because you've been informed of a lot of these things, or at least that's the theory behind it, right? Yeah. Fewer layers, a little bit flatter. You kind of expect Mm -hmm. that maybe you're a little closer to the problem set if you're in a startup or a SaaS company. But so with that in mind, then what is, what is the ADDR process look like for an enterprise versus say a SaaS or a startup? Yeah, so a SaaS or a startup, the ADDR process, that align phase, 
uh, is basically that that work that we do to understand what's our next release going to be. And when we think about the Agile Manifesto, our goal is to continually deliver value. When we think about lean startups or lean, you know, lean processes, our goal is to take a little bit about what we know and put it out there and, you know, an experiment. Maybe you're using the the OODA loop, which uh, came from the U.S. Air Force uh, from a Colonel John Boyd. He came up with this observe, orient, decide, act. It's this loop where we're gathering information. We're determining what we need to do. We take action on it. Then we learn from it. And then we keep going. That's really the principle of this lean startup idea or what people should be doing. And some enterprises are doing that as well. But what we should be doing is we should be cycling on and, and learning over and over again. So that align phase is probably kind of happening as part of the product development cycle when you're in a startup. You're, you're, you're combining experimentation, getting feedback, trying different things out, A-B testing, whatever it is that you're doing. So that's sort of natural. And then you take that learning and you go into the define phase, which allows us to kind of sketch out what the API should look like. What are the operations? Okay. And then the design phase then lets us say, okay, we're going to do REST or GraphQL or gRPC. Let's take this model we built in the define phase, the definition of all the things the API needs to do, and make it real. What are the paths? What are the HTTP methods? What are the response codes? All those kind of details. And then the refine phase lets us to take that, mock it up, put out some you know, mock documentation, put some tests together and everything else, put it in front of people, get feedback, let us refine that API design a little bit to hit the mark. It goes really fast in startups and really fast in SaaS companies that are not huge and bogged down with many layers of management. If the SaaS company gets big or if you're an enterprise IT, it looks a little different. The align phase means we need to go find the right people to tell us why was I given this unit of work? Oftentimes, by the time it, the, the need to design an API comes to us as a team, that stuff has been decided upon in different meetings that have happened that you might not have been in. You just have the declaration so to a, just build it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just go go do it. Hands on keyboards, yeah. you know, that, that whole idea would just crank on the code. But there's still design work to do. There's still understanding to do. There's still collaboration and alignment that needs to occur so that when I need to make these little micro decisions, in my code, in my design, I can do that. When I'm documenting my API, I can write an example or write documentation that helps people understand how to deliver the outcome that that API is meant to do. So that align phase is like a gate that says, do I have enough information to proceed? Do I understand enough about the problem and the solution that this API is meant to solve? And it might be something kind of small or it might be something a bit bigger. It might be like to the scope of a product, you know, and it's the beginnings of a product. It's the first API or set of APIs that a product's going to be comprised of. So that there's, there's, a, there's definitely a difference and it looks a little different, but the principles are the same. Do I understand the problem do, or the pain point? Do I understand the desired outcome or the solution? Mm -hmm. And how does my API in the middle help people get there and, and, and inform my design? So, I mean, so the line phase is really understanding, do I understand the problem? And this kind of implies to me that the rubber starts to really hit the road in the define phase. I'm trying to put down the models, trying to figure out how these things connect together. I'm drawing pictures. I'm, you know, mm -hmm. writing down job stories. Like, how does this then fit in? This is part of a domain-driven design series. How does the A to DR process fit into that? Is that really where the define yeah. stage kind of jumps in? 
Yeah, so so this has been a sort of an interesting challenge because <laughs> I've done I've done domain driven design a little bit. I am by far not nearly the expert that Vaughn is and others are that have been doing it. But what I fully recognize is that there's there are some elements of of domain driven design that anyone can benefit from, even if the organization itself is not using domain driven design in its fullest. Right. And part of that is bounded context, recognizing that. A, a product in an e-commerce store is different in the shopping experience, the catalog of how the details are shown, the, the, the detail page with the title and the price and the availability of the inventory and all that. that. That metadata about that product, the photos, all of the things that go with it is different than the product inventory, which is different than a product put into a, a cart, a shopping cart, which is different than a line item in an order that's been placed that's different than a back order status for that line item, which is different than, is it being shipped? What's the fulfillment? Where does it belong? What warehouse is it in? Where's it coming from? What are all the logistics? All those things are different. And if I created a, a resource in my API called product, it would have to do everything. Oh, okay. I would have a, an API with hundreds of operations. So bringing in the idea of bounded context from domain driven design allows us to have more thoughtfully scoped APIs that focus on one thing, not something too small where it's like one operation per API, but an API that has high cohesion, the operations relate to one another and loose coupling mean that, meaning that I can work with that API and interact with it via REST, GraphQL, whatever, without having to understand the rest of all the different systems that exist for fulfillment and inventory management and 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 logist, shipping logistics and everything else. So I can focus in on the shopping cart API when I'm building an e-commerce experience, a shopping experience for an end user, and I'm not worried about the rest of it. And so from an enterprise perspective, enterprises have many bounded contexts. And sometimes those bounded contexts overlap each other or or do the same thing, but for different market segments or or, or different product offerings and those kinds of things. So that was one element of DDD that I brought in. So I live in Vaughn Vernon's DDD series and I'm inspired by DDD and bringing some of those things in, but you don't have to understand domain-driven design to use ADDR. Right. It, it, it's really just pulling some of these practical things together. So, so that element and, and, you know, and a few others like ubiquitous language, making sure that we're talking about the same thing and we're defining our vocabulary within a bounded context. And these other principles are very important for API design because they go into our documentation, they right. go into our design, they go into everything that we do, our examples that we write, everything. So they need to resonate with that domain area. How do they talk about shopping carts and products versus how do they talk about inventory and warehouses and how do they, versus how do they talk about shipping logistics and, and back orders and all of those different things that come up. So we brought that into it, but but still made it approachable for people that are not familiar with domain-driven design. And that's, I mean, one of the key things I like about ADDR in particular is as part of this align phase, like you say, we're, we're making sure everybody's on the same page. We're not just making sure we're on the same page technically, making sure we're on the same page and aligned in terms of like goals. We're also making sure we're aligned on how we talk about the problem and, and who we're targeting and and that really starts to blend into some of this persona development type of work, making sure that 
you know, we're, we're, we're solving the right problems for the right folks. That helps not just the product team and the engineering team, but eventually the product marketing team. When you start getting to the bounded context and you start designing those out, yeah. it starts to be clear who's in charge of which area. And then I love the fact that from there you go into effectively the design phase by kind of connecting the dots between all those different contexts and assigning data to them, assigning endpoints to them. That's really how that starts to be extracted. I, that's that there's so much power in that. And it's something that I know I've, I've actually used in a few of my, uh, thanks to your book and thanks to your guidance, I've used in some of my consulting engagements as well. It's a good success. It is. Yeah. You know, and the one thing that I really struggle with is somebody comes in and says, Hey, can you review my API design? And they'll put the most beautiful diagram in front of me. It, it will give me tears. It's so beautiful. It's got all the AWS icons. It shows where their lambdas are at. It shows how they're using SQS and SNS. It shows how they're using Redshift and they're scaling their database queries just beyond anything anyone, every, any human's ever seen before. But they can't tell me what the API is supposed to do and how it's solving someone's problem. How are you making someone's day better tomorrow than it is today with your API? And, and some people really struggle with that. I mean, honestly, if somebody says building an API that grabs this data out of the database and puts it in JSON and sends it to this person, you go, you know, how am I making somebody's day better? But if you start asking the questions and take a little time and say, well, who do I need to talk to to understand how they're going to use this? Because if I, I can give them a JSON structure and I can follow all my style guides and naming conventions in my org, I can make it consistent with all the APIs I have. But if it's not solving someone's problem, then I missed something. So if I haven't been given quite enough context for my design and my API to say, what is the problem? And somebody says, oh, well, we're trying to run this report and we need this thing. Okay, great. Let me see how I can help you. Or it's, oh, somebody said that they have this problem. We're building this feature into this UI to solve this problem. Say, so, okay, great. What if I added this in there? Or what if we did it this way instead? Would that make it better? And they go, oh, I didn't even think we could do that. And you said, well, you know, I, I live in this middle ground between what the data source says I have and what my systems tell me from the state of things and a workflow or whatever. I can give you this. You probably didn't know it or you assumed that it wasn't available because it just, it didn't exist in the UI today. So you assume that it wasn't there, but it actually is. And I can help you. That's when developers become so powerful from the idea that we're we're helping people have a better day tomorrow. Yeah. And and our APIs are meant to do that. And and the thing that people forget is if we're just building a web app, we can refactor APIs and refactor our database designs. We can have our automated test to tell us when we broke stuff and how to get things back into the right place so that things are working again when we refactor and no one knows any different. We can change our user interface. And that'll throw a human off for a little while, but then they'll adapt and they'll get used to it. But with APIs, we're talking machine-to-machine -machine communication under everything. Yeah. And we can't teach a machine, at least today, to go with a change, a breaking change, and say, oh, you know that field that used to be called, you know, something-something flag, it's now recall, you know, changed to something else, or a string became an array of things. You can't teach a machine to do that. No. So. As Adrian Cocroft and others have said before, APIs are forever. Once somebody's integrated with it, it is very hard to get them to change, to spend the time, to spend the money, to adapt to some new breaking change. If you're a big behemoth, like one of the big 
you know, tech companies that are out there, you can make a change and force people one day to wake up and go, my stuff doesn't work and I need to make it work. But for most of us, for us mere mortals that aren't those big companies, yep. we have to bring people along with us. And so we can't just make a change. So we have to be a lot more thoughtful about our API design because it's communication. And, you know, it's not communication within the team that's building it communication with every developer that's integrating with it and communication with those organizations that have agreed to use our API and maybe pay for it, you know, subscription or per transaction pricing model or something, it, it, you have to communicate with them and you have mm -hmm. change management. This is way different. This distributed model is way different than the way we're used to working with one or more code bases inside of an org where we can go tap on some other team's shoulder and say, hey, can we agree to change this and coordinate our efforts? There's there's a lot more to it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put in a pitch here. ADDR is like I said, I've used it quite a bit with my consulting clients. It's actually really it helps to organize your thinking around this. And at the end of the day, like there's always a human at the other end. You need to pay attention to that human. But as you said, once that API is in place, it it's it's kind of forever. And so you got to make sure you get it right without slowing down the team. So principles of web design. Uh, excuse me, Principles of Web API Design, uh, James Higginbotham. I highly recommend getting a copy of that. And uh, you can find it on Amazon. Find it everywhere you buy books. Yep. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to break in here real quick. And thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support this podcast and help keep it going, please visit compiling.publicgeeking.com forward slash support to find out how. All right. Back to the conversation. All right, so switching topics a little bit. Uh, okay, I, I I don't want to call us both out, but we're we're look we're we're both aging developers. Okay, we were talking a little earlier today. Um, I started programming. Well, I've I've been sitting behind a computer since probably I was about eight years old. Started really learning how to program since I was about ten. Um, and yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm I'm now in my forties, <clears throat> very close to my fifties. And I feel like my body has had to adapt in some strange ways. Basically, what I'm getting at is, damn, my back hurts. Um, <laughs> at times, at times. Yeah. And this is something that I know we wanted to talk about because you have quite a bit of experience with this, and uh, and are a passionate advocate to help young, you know, younger developers and folks our age as well, like take care of themselves. So, tell me a little bit about. How are you dealing with this? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm just like you, Rob. You know, I'm I'm in my late 40s. I started coding when I was about eight or nine, started on Commodore 64, plucking away. So I had plenty of time to sit behind a computer and to develop poor posture, um, you know, not develop strength in my muscles the 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 way, you know, the right ways and kind of missed a lot of opportunities. So I've had decades of opportunities to really cause back problems and I've struggled with chronic back pain for a while. And so, um, when I'm, when I'm out, when I'm traveling, when I'm doing a teaching of APIs or whatever else, I, there's a lot that I have to keep in mind, uh, with keeping my back in, in order. I carry, um, you know, small little gadgets like lacrosse balls and things like that to kind of help work the tension out of my, wow. my muscles and things like that. And I keep them in my luggage and every once in a while I'll go through TSA uh, uh, and, and even when I'm flying internationally and going through airport security and some international airport and they, they scan my bag and they see these balls in there and they're like, why are these here? And I'm like, 
I have to kind of motion to, to my back. Lacrosse, my back, match you know, later on. Lacrosse balls and stuff. So one tip that I found, I'll give you a security tip here, folks. If you have two like lacrosse balls and they're sitting next to each other, they create this image that looks not good to security <laughs> teams. It just looks like something, somebody's trying to do something nefarious. And so I've learned to put one ball in one corner of the bag and one ball oh in the other God. corner of the bag because to separate them so that they look like, you know, tennis balls or lacrosse <laughs> balls, what they are, instead of something that looks like some concoction that somebody created. So just, just know that I've encountered that before. People are like, what is oh, that? Man. And they'll like be kind of standoffish and looking like, oh, they're just a couple of lacrosse balls sitting so, next to each other. And it creates this shadowed image and the imaging machines that. So basically you're saying is like, in addition to taking out, because this is the problem that I've had. We both have have done a ton of travel as part of our careers. One of the things that I found, um, I have a bag of wires. And if that bag of wires, uh, if I don't open that up on the TSA thing, like I'm going to get checked every single time. It's like, yeah, we need to go through that. So now I'm, now you're telling me I got to take out my, my fluids. I got to take out my wires and I got to take out my lacrosse balls. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So, so I kind of probably jumped ahead a little bit, but, but it's why I need lacrosse balls, but I've over the years developed these chronic back problems and part of it's in the neck, just kind of, you know, stooped over laptops, phones, whatever over the years. Um, part of it is in my thoracic. So that's from the neck down to the lumbar, down to the lower back. So what we would call our mid back. And I've developed this situation where I've gone to chiropractors and they've helped me kind of align my back, but my muscles tighten up. And I get inflammation. Yeah. And it just starts to ache a lot. So because of that, I have to have things like lacrosse balls where I can lean against the wall and put the put the balls between my back and the wall and just kind of roll around. And what it does is it just puts a little bit of tension into the muscle and it helps the muscle to release and relax. So I've used these different kind of things over the years. I've learned when I travel, because you're you're squished into these these airplane <laughs> seats and they're smaller class. and smaller and you know, and they're trying to stack us too, too high now. And pretty soon they'll be laying us like lumber stacked <laughs> up or something, you know, or, I mean, it's just, it's getting crazy. So, so we're squeezed in that cars today are not ergonomic. They're, their seats are designed for safety, not for your back, for your, so they're jutting your neck forward. They're doing all kinds of crazy things are kind of, you know, sitting you in these funny positions. And then we sit in front of our computers all day. Yeah. And so I've really had a lot of back problems and it kind of came to a head last year, back in the, the, the fall of 2022, I got a, a, an illness that ended up kind of weakening my muscles. I was kind of down and fighting it for, for several weeks. And it just, my muscles started getting weaker. And then all of a sudden I started having problems. And, and by, by the, the fall, uh, a few months after I got sick last year, um, my lower back started following me and I woke up one day and it was kind of achy and it just kept getting worse and worse. And pretty soon I couldn't get in and out of a chair without severe pain and grimacing. Jesus. I had to go to the ER. Yeah. I had to go to the ER and I said, you know, look, I've had this happen before. Um, can you help me? And so they, they gave me, you know, some medicine to help kind of get the muscles to relax. They gave me some anti-inflammatories. So effectively like uh, ibuprofen, but they inject it instead of, uh, uh ingesting it and, and you know and then i had to for the pain yeah yeah so <laughs> and i don't like covering up pain with medication i don't like taking a lot of medication but when you get to that point you get to that point and so so i finally started seeking out some help and i went to um a spine specialist and said can you check out my spine tell me if my spine's okay and all kinds of mris and stuff and they said yep your spine's okay you have a little bit of arthritis but it's probably muscular 
So I started going to physical therapy and that has made a huge difference. So all of the bad habits I've had over these years, um, even with chiropractic adjustments, even with walking, I like to walk several miles a day, you know, treadmill or outdoors or whatever. Even with all of that, it doesn't mean that I'm using my muscles correctly and physical therapy has been helping me. So what they've been doing is helping me to strengthen my core. And when you think of core, it's not just your ab muscles. In fact, is there's a specific ab muscle and then muscles that are called paraspinal muscles that go up and down along your spine and the thoracic and uh, the mid back and everything else. So they've been helping me with that. And, um, and then my spine specialist recommended something. And you know, if, if you have a doctor that recommends it, feel free to go for it as, as using turmeric. Turmeric is is uh, an ingredient that's used in yellow curry, and it's and it's um, it's just a root. Um, it's just a plant. Yeah, it's just a it's just a root. Yeah, and so it's just a ground up root, and you, you can get it in pill form, uh, among other forms. And I've been taking that, and it, what it does is it helps reduce inflammation. So it's like a natural anti-inflammatory. So I don't have to live on medication as much during the day. If I have a bad day, I'll, I'll I'll grab grab something. But most of the time, I just take a little bit of turmeric in the morning and the afternoons, and so it's been helping me. So. Uh, stretches, uh, muscle strengthening with the advice of a physical therapist that really understands how the muscles work and, and how we should be lifting things and how we should be sitting and standing and all of these things that we do every day that from for me and, and likely for you at age eight, age nine, we start in front of a computer. Yeah. I mean, you spend your when whole day. When a lot day, of people weren't doing that. I mean, you spend your whole day sitting in a classroom. And then you yeah. maybe have, you know, the 15 yeah. minute break and then the 30 minute lunch and the rest of the time you're, and then I went home and I went behind the computer. Right. So no, but this yeah, is the exactly. thing though. You're finding this all out now, right? This is years and years of this building up. What could you have done? What could I have done aside from getting off the computer occasionally, <laughs> which I thought I, I did yeah. a good job on. I feel like I kind of did. I started a family and stuff. So <laughs> getting away from the computer occasionally, aside from that, like, what are the things that folks who are in their younger years seeing this, like, wh- what have you learned that may be able to help them? Uh, yeah, I think there's a, a few things that I've learned. One is um, when I was younger, I felt invincible. Yeah. Because your body is able to handle a lot of stress. And you don't realize how much stress you're putting on it. Um, but as you get older, it gets harder. I'm, I'm six months into this journey and, and, you know, they, as, as a lot of my doctors said, you know, you, you spend decades doing the wrong things, having the wrong posture, not strengthening the right muscles, not doing the right kinds of exercises for the type of work you're in. It's going to take years to, to do this. And, and, and the older you get, the worse it is. So what I'd recommend for people, no matter what your age is, is to, um, is to make sure that you're doing the right things with using the right muscles. You have the right posture and so on. Some people may have had the opportunities to, to learn that themselves or have parents that taught them or, or particular people, you know, had influencers that helped them. But if you didn't and you're sitting in front of a computer a lot, even if you're doing what I did, which I used to ride my bike all the time. I grew up outside of Houston and I'd ride my bike miles and miles and exercise and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. It still doesn't mean I was actually understanding the right posture, understanding which muscles needed to be strengthened, how to support my body in a safe way, how to safely lift things and move things. And, and so, you know, you spend all day, like you said, sitting in a classroom, sitting in front of a computer, whatever else, and then you get out and then all of a sudden you're being asked to on the weekend to clean out a storage room or move some things around or move to another apartment or whatever. And you're moving heavy stuff around and you may not be doing it right. So finding a physical therapist, they have some amazing techniques 
to, they can explain how the muscles work. They explain how you should be doing things safely. They can give you stretches and exercises that will prolong and help you so that you don't end up like me where you're carrying with cross balls in your luggage bags <laughs> and leaning up against the walls, trying to get your mid back muscles to relax and taking turmeric to get the inflammation down because you've done so much damage over the years. Your muscles are weak. Your muscles aren't able to support your frame properly. It then puts other pressure on joints. And, you know, your, your spine and your muscles connect. Your muscles will compensate when your spine gets out of alignment. And your spine will compensate when your muscles aren't doing the right things. And it will cause pain yeah. or cause inflammation. And that's what I've struggled with. And so if, you know, I'm trying to help my kids learn this and, and, and it takes time. Yeah. But to, but to kind of develop the proper habits so that you can, if you love coding, you want to be able to code as long as you can. And the last thing you want is to ruin your back such that you can't sit in front of a computer and do the things that you love. Uh, I mean, when I was coming yeah. up in, in my career, like the big conversation was around RSI, right? It was about the wrists and everything. So like, I know all these great wrist exercises. I know all these great things to do to just make sure. And you know, my wrists seem pretty solid. I get occasionally get pain, but nobody ever really talked about the back stuff. Nobody ever talked about what it, you know, the pain of sitting all the time. And I wonder, I kind of feel like there's a shift maybe like there's a lot more awareness just in general about health in our body than I, maybe there was growing up or maybe I just didn't pay enough attention. But like, you know, I, I was at a conference a couple weeks ago and I ducked out into an empty hallway to get some work done. And another conference attendee did the exact same thing, but he found this little area where he could just kind of lie down and he started doing all kinds of like the snake position for yoga and the, 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 I think it's called the resting baby position, all these different things to kind of stretch things out. And he found the time in the middle of a conference to go and take that little break to do that. So I'm wondering if that's, I don't know, that's just something that I've observed. I'm, I'm hoping that more people are picking up on that. And I do know that in my case, I feel the same way about, I've got one of these, um, like I should probably grab it and show it to you. One of these like massager things. It's a a heavy thumper. I don't know how else to call it. It's it's very Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And like yeah, when I true. run those things along, in particular the leg muscles and the lower back muscles, and then I stand up and I start walking around, it's almost like I don't know how to describe it. It's like I had no idea how much tension there was until I finally got a chance to release it. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's there's more of this go find a physical therapist and figure that stuff out, right? Yeah, I, I think there's a few factors involved. I don't know exactly what's maybe causing this other than when you and I started in this industry and there's others that came before us in what I would consider kind of the first generation of those yeah. that were coding computers and, and doing data entry and kind of those that, that initial stage of, of computers where you were sitting. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm so yeah, the, so we've got, yeah. <laughs> so we, we, have a, we have kind of a generation that came before us and then there's us, but the number of people that are in front of a computer today, not just as developers, but just part of their daily yeah. routine has exponentially grown. And so you're starting to hear store horror stories more and more. Whereas when we were growing up, no one really, I mean, most of what we did is you know, our, our lifestyles is most kids that we grew up with, our peers were doing things not in front of a computer. We yeah. were the rare few that kind of did this type of stuff and really loved it and took to it young but most people weren't and so there was a there was a different different aspect to it and now there's more and more people entering into our field and so you have exponentially more people that 
have these kinds of problems in some degree or another. And I agree with you, that tightness is amazing. Uh, one of the things I learned from PT is, you know, mo- some people may, this might be like, James, you should have paid more attention in school, but, <laughs> but you know, our muscles are elastic. Yeah. They do contract. They're made to expand and contract. And if we leave them in a contracted state for a long time, they will have a hard time expanding. They're fibers, they're, they're fibrous. And so they have to be taut. So that's where those stretches come in. And so if you sit in front of a computer all day, and get up and 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 do stuff. Um, you're going from a contracted state to trying to use them again. And if you're not doing it right, and you're not using the right muscles. You can really injure yourself. I was in retail before I got into software. I was coding as a kid, but before I started profess- my professional software career, I was in retail and I moved heavy car batteries around, pallets of them, oh, tires. And I hurt my lower back several times and I'd have, you know, I'd have the weight belt on and all the sort of stuff that was supposed to support everything, but I was doing stuff wrong and I'd hurt myself. But you know, I was early twenties. You yeah. just, you, you grin, you bear it, you deal with it and take a little bit of medicine and in a few days you're fine. Yeah. But that damage continues. Yeah. And that's getting harder, and harder to do. And so right? I mean, I still feel yeah. like I can just go out there and lift some heavy stuff and just be good with it. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, that's right. I'm not 20 anymore. What the hell happened? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So whether you're whether you're in your 40s or you're older and you're struggling with this or whether you're in, you know, you're fresh out of of college, you have your CS degree and you're starting your career and you're listening to this. There are things you can do and we might want to prioritize other things ahead. We might want to prioritize not only our time, but our budgets for other things. But I found that today's physical therapists are very, very informed capable of helping us to understand how to do things and take a little time, do that and spend, you know, right now, every day I spend at least two, maybe three hours a day walking, stretching, doing exercises. Cause I have to make up for lost time, not because more time means that I'm going to get better, but it's because my body is in such a position that it takes multiple sessions throughout the day to keep my muscles warmed up and capable of doing the right thing and keeping that inflammation down and, and keeping that pain level down. So if I had started and spent 15, 20 minutes doing that each day when I was younger, it would have been huge. And if, you know, if there's somebody listening, so I go to the gym and I, you know, and I work, you know, I do certain workout and I've got a personal trainer, double check with someone and make sure that you're strengthening the right muscles for your frame, for what you do each day. I am not a medical professional. I'm just speaking from experience going, waking up every day going, ouch, is not fun. Yeah. And if, if you, you know, just just slow down a little bit, don't, don't assume that every line of code means you're more valuable than you were yesterday. Our code is not the only thing that defines us. That's why it irks me. It just makes me so mad when managers go hands on keyboards. They think that typing is the only thing that's valuable. Our health is valuable. Our ability to communicate is valuable as well as our mind and our code, all of it goes together. And it's all so connected. don't just assume that you need to just purely focus on code and get better at code for, for uh, to, to be relevant, to be able to be promoted, to be, you know, able to increase your salary or whatever else that, that you're thinking. There's a lot more to it than that. So slow down a little bit. It's that holistic approach because the, the pain in the body affects the ability to think clearly. And the best time to start thinking about this is, well, frankly, 10 years ago. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And if you you didn't do it 10 years ago, do it right now. Figure that out. Well, that's not. But yeah, so 
it, it plays it plays into my world. So when we talk about APIs, you know, I'm I used to travel all over the world and now don't travel quite as much, but still do a lot of training and other things and standing in front. And I use a standing desk and standing in front of a camera and teaching people APIs. I still hurt quite often and I have yeah. to take frequent breaks to kind of deal with that. And, um, and so it impacts my ability to do stuff. So my goal here is to get healthy so that I can help other people, you know, understand how to approach API design, understand all those things. So all this stuff kind of comes together. So while we're kind of here talking about APIs, this is, this is kind of my personal mission is to help developers, help people in the tech industry in general, uh, understand that this is really, really important because I'm here to tell you that when you don't do it and you keep putting it off and you say, I'll do that tomorrow, I'll do that next month, I'll do that, you know, later on when I've got more time, it, it, it hurts. Yeah. Eventually yeah. one day you'll wake up and all of a sudden this stuff starts bothering you. And I've seen more tweets coming out in my tweet streams of people talking about back problems here and there and stuff. And they've been struggling. So it's something a lot of us deal with. It's a known so, issue. Uh, yeah. And then yeah. it's inspiring. It's making me want to, I, I had a physical therapist for a while and I, I, I was doing it just kind of cause my wife was doing it. Oh, I should go give him a call, get back into it. Oh. Yeah, definitely. And, and they've actually, I've noticed um, over the years, there's been a lot of incre- improvement in techniques yeah. and improvement in the ways they can help you. And, and um, you know, with, with video streaming and, and other video, you know, videos just being available all the time. You don't have to get a sheet of paper to tell you how to do it. I found out that some of the things that I was taught years ago were, I was doing them wrong, not because uh, of anything other than I didn't have the resources to teach me how to do it right. So now they have these ways where they can show you a video. Here's how you do it correctly. So that it's isolating the right muscles. It's doing the right thing and you're not hurting yourself or not wasting your time. So if, you know, if you've gone to a physical therapist before, but it's been quite a few years, they've made some quite a few advances that maybe even just a few sessions to kind of get refreshed on some stuff and maybe taught a few new things would make a huge difference. Well, in, in kind of that same way, like, you know, the physical therapist I'm thinking of, like he, he might, I don't want to go too much in detail of this. My wife had a lot of back issues as well, had a couple of surgeries, et cetera. And so he was coming out and massaging her and adjusting her. And that was about the same time that I was going on long walks and finding that my legs were so much in pain after doing even, you know, not even that long a walk that I, it hurt to, it just hurt to move. It hurt to exist. So he started getting there and, working those muscles and stuff. And it, you know, when you look for a technical expert, somebody who is an expert on say APIs or mobile development or AI or whatever, like you want somebody who really intimately understands what's going on underneath the hood. And I got to say, this guy knew more, like he was detecting things. He would like rub over a muscle and say like, did you ever have an injury here? And I'm like, well, I'm trying to think that, well, I guess there was that one time, like, 15 years ago, it's like, yeah, you're still kind of recovering from that. Like he really could tell just by feeling around like what was going on. And that level of education I didn't have for my body. No one's ever given me that. So I haven't had the kind of pain. I haven't seen him in more than a year and a half now, at least, at least since the pandemic. So longer than that, I haven't seen him since then and have not had the same problems because the awareness that he brought to my body as to what was causing that has allowed me to be more conscious of it and be thoughtful about it. And that's tremendously helpful. So I stretch out more and do all of that. So I, I can't stress enough. I agree with you. Go, go see a physical therapist. If you're having these problems in the meantime, go find the exercises that, that do work, but make sure you have a medical expert confirming that they're doing the job for you and you're not wasting your time and you're not doing them incorrectly. 
Yeah, absolutely. The, yeah, and, and as you said, somebody that understands this deeply, the, the physical therapy that I've been going through, they start you off with a certain set of exercises and then they promote you, they increase resistance or they'll you know, mix in some new ones. And then eventually they're like, okay, now let's practice deadlifting weight. You go, ah, oh, I'm, I'm not a weightlifter. And they go, no, <laughs> anything that's below you or above you, you need to learn how to transition the weight appropriately and use the right muscles. Well, what I saw was they, they, they use scaffolded learning just like educators do in the classroom and just like we do in the tech world where we say, first, you need to learn how to do this and code, you know, construct a, a function and then construct a class and then put classes together and make them talk to each other. And then, and then we can put in a, a network API and make them talk to each other over the network and you progressively grow. They have progressive plans or they did for me to help me work on certain areas before they were ready to start the next thing. So then all of a sudden he says, okay, here's how we're gonna do the deadlift. And he says, remember that one exercise I showed you, we're gonna use that first. And then we're gonna do this one. And then we're gonna do this one. And all of a sudden he's taking all these foundational elements and building upon them, just like we do in software every day. If you find someone uh, to do that, cause I've worked with, I'm working with a practice. So I've worked with multiple physical therapists in that practice. And so there's a couple, uh, there's, a, there's a guy I'm working with, uh, uh, a wonderful lady that taught me a lot of stuff and and all of them together helped me to get these foundational elements that then combine to help me do things even more complex than before, just like we do in software. It works exactly the same. And if you're doing what I did, which is I would go into a chiropractor, get adjusted and say, oh, here, do this stretch. But they weren't telling me, here's how to do it properly. And here's why we do it. And here's how to progress to the next stage or whatever else. They're just like, here, do this one. I heard this one works well. Mm-hmm. not because chiropractors are terrible. You may or may not like them, but they've worked for me, but because that's not their specialty. As you right. said, finding someone that specializes that can help you just like you would get help learning a new programming language, a new web framework, or how to design an API or whatever else it is. Learning those core elements, strengthening that skill, getting that muscle memory, and then going to the next step has been life-changing for me. Wow. So uh, it's really, really important. That is amazing. Well, hey, look, thank you so much for, uh, this is a great conversation. I really enjoyed this. So, hey, pitch yeah, your likewise. thing. Pitch your thing. What's What do you want people to walk away with? Uh, two things, really. First thing, the book. If you're in API design, you're looking for some process that can help you and your team re- have a repeatable, scalable process to API design as part of your disciplines of what you do, then uh, Principles of Web API Design from, from Pearson or Addison Wesley. Uh, grab that book. It walks through it. I also do training and consulting in this area. So if you need a little assistance in that side, um, I work with uh, smaller engagements. Sometimes I'll do a burst engagement. Oftentimes my engagements are six to 12 months long, and it's to help an organization kind of get on their feet and get the right disciplines and processes and things in place. So uh, you can find information about me at launch, N-E-L-A-U-N-C-H-A-N-Y.com or the same handle on Twitter. You can reach out to me that way. All links will be in the description. All links will be in the description. Perfect. All right. Yeah. Thanks so much, Rob. This was a great discussion. I appreciate uh, having me here. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. Awesome. I mean, after hearing that, I, I'm finding myself sitting up straight in my uh, in my chair here, and you know, I can feel my back and all the places that it kind of needs to be loosened up. So, uh, thanks again, James. I really appreciate you taking the time, and thank you for inviting us between your ears. This has been the Compiling Podcast with Rob Z and Friends. 
Until next time. The Compiling Podcast is produced, written, published, hosted, and copyrighted by Rob Sisweta. All opinions expressed belong to the individuals expressing them and not necessarily the organizations to which they belong. To find show notes and listen to additional episodes, please visit compiling.publicgeeking.com. Talk to you soon!